Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Dr. Gary Rochelle, chemical engineering professor at University of Texas, and Ben Owens, vice president and general manager of Honeywell Sustainable Technology Solutions. Recently, the University of Texas and Honeywell had a joint press release announcing a licensing agreement between Honeywell and the University of Texas at Austin to utilize a University of Texas patented carbon capture technology. Rather than me trying to explain this, let's just jump in with the experts and hear what they have to say. Dr. Rochelle, Ben, thank you for joining me today on the show. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background. Gary, let's have you go first. Okay, so I'm the Carol and Henry Groppy Professor of Chemical Engineering in the McKenna, McKenna Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. So much for the formalities. I've been training students uh, using research on air pollution for from power plants for uh, 45 years, and it's, a, it's been an exciting trend. And we've, we've been working mo- most recently on developing technology specifically using solvent scrubbing uh, to remove the CO2. And that's what we'll talk about today. Thank you for your introduction. Ben, can we get your introduction now? Absolutely. Well, uh, it's a pleasure being on. It's a pleasure to talk to you know your podcast. My name is Ben Owens. I'm the vice president and general manager of a business in Honeywell called Honeywell Sustainable Technology Solutions. It's uh, a business group focused on process technologies that's working to solve many of the world's toughest climate challenges. I've been with Honeywell now in my 15th year, uh, many of our industrial businesses throughout Honeywell. And uh, I do have to say this is the most exciting business I've been in. And uh, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for your introduction. And I think we, well, let me put this in perspective of, of my personal life. I have a Honeywell fan in my bedroom, but until until meeting you, Ben, and, and hearing this press release, I didn't realize just how big Honeywell was and, and really how, how pervasive your company is. Could you give us a little bit more of an introduction to Honeywell and really what you're doing in the energy transition space? Yeah, I mean, many people associate Honeywell with uh, it's either fan, uh, HVAC, or their home thermostat. Um, 
but that's only a small portion of what Honeywell does. Honeywell is hard as an innovation company, kind of creating what's next across many different industries. Uh, we span from aerospace to buildings to uh, commercial warehousing to safety. So we really have a passion about advancing sustainability. Um, most people don't realize this about Honeywell, but since 2004, we've resu- reduced our greenhouse gases 90%. That's a significant amount, 90% since 2004. And since we're on the topic, what what kind of targets does Honeywell have in terms of of reaching net zero or or further greenhouse gas reductions? Yeah. So we have a wide range. Um, since 2000, I mean, we're just not focused on selling sustainable solutions. We're focused on making commitment and using them ourselves. So we have a, a wide range of technologies across renewable fuels. Um, we make diesel and jet from feedstocks like fat soils and greases. Um, we recently announced partnerships in chemical recycling to really combat the global issue of plastic waste, um, carbon capture, which we're talking about today, and even long-duration flow batteries. So you sum those up, and then those are what we're deploying to the world. But we made a commitment to be carbon neutral by 2035. It's one of the most aggressive in our industry. Um, So it's a combination of making a commitment and doing what we kind of saying while we're selling but also producing products that help help the world bigger. I mean, one of them I'll give you is we make a product called Solstice. It's a next generation refrigerant. It has the equivalent. It's removed 42 million cars from the road. That's kind of the equivalent of the greenhouse gas reduction. So the combination of driving innovation, but also as a company driving sustainability ourselves. Ben, thank you for that. And thank you for introducing the really why we're here today. We're talking about carbon capture and this new technology that that Dr. Gary Rochelle helped invent through the Texas Carbon Management Program. So, Gary, you've given us your background. Can you introduce us to your research group there at UT? So my research group is called the Texas Carbon Management Program. Uh, We're supported by the Department of Energy and more than 30 companies, uh, 30 industrial companies. Uh, This work has been ongoing for CO2 capture since about 2000. That's about 22 years. The primary objective of our work is always to train PhD students. In this particular program, we've, we've trained more than 40 PhD students who've been working on this technology. But, but a secondary objective and result of the technology is we want to work on interesting problems and we want to develop solutions to those interesting problems. And one of the solutions that we've developed is this technology that we've licensed to Honeywell. Thank you for that introduction. So... You're working on a, you, you've developed this new carbon capture technology. Now, whenever I think about carbon capture, I usually skip those two words and go straight to the storage. So all of my work is in the subsurface. And I guess I've always, I've always heard the term scrubbing or carbon capture or, or direct air capture. 
And I guess I don't really know too much about what happens above the ground. Can you give us just a generalized understanding? What are we talking about when we say carbon capture? Is that synonymous with scrubbing? Just help us uh, help help us learn a little bit here. Well, car- carbon capture is is getting pure CO two out of the flue gas. Uh, flue gas is mostly nitrogen, and it's at atmospheric pressure, just like the air we breathe, and has about four to twelve percent carbon dioxide in it. And somehow, somehow we have to separate the carbon dioxide from the nitrogen, and we do that. We we name that scrubbing, uh, but basically it consists of taking an uh, an aqueous solution of an organic material that's selective for the CO2. Usually it's a base, uh, and we absorb the CO2 into that solution by running it through a contactor, which might be a bunch of egg crate with liquid running down it and then gas running up through the egg crate, and we call that scrubbing. And then we also have to finish this process because now that we've removed the CO2 from the nitrogen, we, we have CO2 in an aqueous solution. We have to get it out of that. Basically, we boil it and produce a pure CO2 vapor, uh, which we compress and condense. And ultimately, it's the same liquid CO2 that's, that might be used in a restaurant to, to provide fizzy drinks. Uh, and that's what we call scrubbing. All right. So it's basically, it kind of is the idea of scrubbing. You are pulling the CO2 off of this flue gas. And and correct me if I'm wrong, the flue gas is really the exhaust from power plants. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, it's that exhaust from power plants. And then the CO2 that we produce has, has to go to storage somewhere. And that's the part you're familiar with. Uh, and that's basically a liquid or really high density CO2 that goes through a pipeline to a storage facility. Okay. Okay. So that's the scrubbing process and pulling that CO2 and and concentrating it into pure CO2. Are there, you've developed this new technology. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering what are existing, I, existing technologies for carbon capture? Well, scrubbing in general is an existing technology. So the technology that we've developed, I would call it a second generation scrubbing technology. It, it's better because uh, it has a has lower heat requirements and less less capital cost to build all that equipment. Uh, there are other technologies which you will read about that are, that have been worked on for carbon capture, uh, but. And, and they can be scrubbing other scrubbing technologies. And there are other technologies that use other separation methods to get the CO2 out of the gas. Can you, can you share with us some of those other, those other carbon capture methods? Yeah, I think I'd jump in there. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, I think you kind of the highest level to kind of help the listeners kind of think about it. You know, the easiest way to think about carbon capture is kind of classing it by, classifying it by source. So the, the first one is generally referred to as pre-combustion. So this is any, includes any type of CO2-rich gas, but it's usually natural gas. And before natural gas can go in a pipeline and deliver to power plants, people's homes, CO2 as a contaminant must be removed. And uh, we've been doing this for many years. Uh, Honeywell has over, it's actually doing this and capturing over 15 million metric tons a year, primarily used for enhanced oil recovery, 
Um, it, the, the CO2 we capture doesn't go into permanent sequestration. Um, you know, it, it, this has been in practice for many years. It primarily uses um, solvent and membrane technologies. Um, I'd say the next is post-combustion carbon capture. Uh, this refers to when you burn a fuel and you get CO2 as an emission. Um, you typically, a fossil you know, fuel, power plant, other industries, steel, cement. These streams are usually larger flow, um, lower concentration CO2s. And uh, they have been more costly to treat. And this is, you know, I'll let Dr. Rochelle get a little deeper here as we talk about um, the absorbent stripping that we're really targeting with this new offering. Um, and then the final opportunity is direct air capture. So this kind of goes a step farther. You're thinking about the levels of concentration. This goes far level. You're talking the concentration of CO2 in the air rather than a point source. And many people are working on this. But this is why it makes it the most costly method, because you have extremely dilute source of CO2 that you're pulling from the air. It's very interesting. So you're saying that there is pre-combustion where you're pulling out CO2 as a contaminant, and that takes a different type of technology compared to the post-combustion, which takes a another type of technology and then direct air capture is is a third type of technology am i understanding correctly with their uh, applications um within those broad technology or those applications you kind of can mix in cryogenic solvents membranes um absorbents um so not a direct correlation many depending on your level of purification and your level of CO2 you want to pull out, there can be some differences. But the broadest level, um, you're using more solvents and membranes. And I'll let Dr. Rochelle talk a little about the solvent. Yeah, and we can, we can, we can say more about the solvent. And so it's usually an aqueous solution uh, and it, of, of some organic material that's a base that uh, interacts with the CO2 and, and the CO2 can dissolve in that solvent. And then when you boil the solvent, the CO2 comes right back out again. And the solvent is reused. That's really important to understand. Uh, so, so we have this solvent that picks up the CO2 and then we take the CO2 out of the solvent and then we send the CO2 back and reuse it. Interesting. So... So that's what we're talking about when we say the absorption stripping, because that's the the new technology that that you've developed. Yeah. So our new technology is is in the field of absorption stripping, and and, and that's certainly what we're doing with it, uh, and and it has its own special properties. Okay. So when we're talking about, I guess absorption stripping there's there's different different solvents and different properties what is i guess what's the industry standard at this time compared to compared to what you've developed ben did you want to take that one no let you go ahead okay okay so so the the standard for for using Absorption stripping is, is something that we call acid gas treating, and that's where uh, you have a natural gas, uh, methane or hydrogen in a chemical plant, 
or or as we said earlier, it would be pre-combustion treating. Uh, and that technology has been used since 1930 for cleaning up oil field gases. Uh, it's very commonly used throughout, throughout the uh, petroleum industry and the petrochemical industry. Uh, and um, it, so it, it, it represents the state of the art. And what we're trying to do now is to take that same technology and apply it uh, to a different problem, specifically to removing CO2 from combustion gases and dilute gases and lower pressure gases. Okay. Just out of curiosity, why has there why has there not been any advances since the 1930s in this in this realm? Oh, there have been many advances since the 1930s, uh, but only since about 1980 have we been concerned about removing CO2 from flue gas, from stack gas that comes off of gas and coal-fired power plants, and frankly, only since about 2000. Have we been seriously removed in that, interested in that technology? So, so that's the part that we're working on is the specific uh, problems associated with using this rather old technology for this new application, which is gas and coal-fired power plants and other sources of combustion gases. Okay. Okay. I understand now. I think that's always a, a fascinating a fascinating thing as I'm talking to people, seeing that there are these, these quote unquote old technologies that work really well in, in a specific, spe- in a specific space here talking about this pre-combustion scrubbing, whereas now bringing in new fresh minds and new, new people to work on the problem, they can apply those those advances and that state of the art to a new space that creates a a better a better job i guess so when we're talking about about using this absorption stripping and this acid treatment for flue gas how and really your specific technology how does it compare to what was being done I mean, we're not getting the specific economics, but the reason we like this technology so much is um, it has some unique properties um, that reduce the capital cost. And that capital cost is really what, you know, customers look at for return on investment. Like when you're doing a project, our customers do initial techno-economics. And because the absorption qualities of this solvent um, it can has a number of things that allow us to design the equipment different. So, for example, one of the major um, cost drivers of project this will be the absorber. And that's kind of where we're putting together the experience and the partnership is we routinely kind of scale up technologies. Um, we've done over 1,200 kind of chemical and physical solvent systems. And the, our experience kind of shows that with these uh, performance advantages will allow us to design lower or smaller equipment, uh, hence driving the co- capital costs lower. And, you know, our view is some market leading, you know, technology. 
that's very, I guess that, that makes a lot of sense being able to find a way to scale up and to apply the technology and the advances that are being made. When I, as you were talking, I had the question come to mind, what are the, with, with current scrubbing technologies that exist, what kind of percentage is, is this carbon capture and the scrubbing, what kind of capital expense is that for, for power plant operations? So what, I guess the, another way to ask, like, what is the size of this market that we're talking about? Not only in capital expense, but also how much CO2 are we really talking about here? Yeah, so we're not going to dive into details of the capital expense. Um, but kind of what I can share is for, uh, you know, a typical, you know, 650 megawatt capacity power plant. Um, this is a meaningful impact. This could technology could cap- capture 3.4 million tons of CO2 annually. That one plant is equivalent of 735,000 cars. So that's one plant. This technology has a meaningful impact. And, you know, there's many technologies we're talking about the future, but this is a ready now technology that can have a significant impact on the, you know, climate change. And it's one that belongs in the discussion. Um, In terms of percents, um, you know, it depends how you design the process. But, you know, I think, uh, Dr. Shell, we, you know, depending on how we design this process, you know, anywhere from 90 to 99% is possible. Um, You have to make off some internal trade-offs, but there is nothing limiting the ability to capture carbon. So uh, I, I think another question you were trying to ask is it's what's the magnitude of the problem in terms of dollars, maybe? Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the, the U.S. used to have 300 coal-fired power plants. They don't have that many anymore because they're starting to shut down. But typically, the cost of applying this technology at a coal-fired power plant will be on the order of a billion dollars. So you could you could have said, well, if we were going to put it on all of the coal-fired power plants, that would have been $300 billion at one point. But we're not going to put it on all of them. We're going to put it on 5, 10, 20 of them, maybe 30 or 40. Uh, but but it's still a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, that is one thing that, that I'm always amazed by is how much it is, how expensive carbon capture and and the storage side of it, how expensive that is and how it is, it's going to, it's going to change the way that we look at energy and the way that we look at the energy market because of how, how we have to address the carbon, the carbon input. And as we talk about a voluntary carbon market or a carbon tax, these are all aspects that ultimately can change our view of of that electricity source beyond just a a for lack of a better term an emotional attachment whether it's coal or gas or oil or or solar 
this actually changes the the valuation of that energy. And we certainly will have to pay more for energy if we're going to decarbonize it. Mm-hmm. So earlier, Gary, you said that you've been you've been a professor for forty five years, and you've been specifically working and started the Texas Carbon Management research program that's been working on this specific technology for 22 years? Are those, are those the correct numbers? Those are the right numbers, yes. And now you are taking this new de- newly developed, better, more efficient carbon capture technology and trying to apply it to real-world scenarios. And I, that's, I guess, where Honeywell comes in, into this partnership. Is that correct? That's right. It is. Mm-hmm. So, so why now? I guess. Why not sooner? Why not later? <laughs> <laughs> it should have been done sooner. Uh, and even now, you know that it it, it depends on government. Uh, we have to have incentives for this. Uh, uh, and sometimes the incentives are there, and they're developing more incentives now. But uh, we probably will need more incentives before we get this job finished. We either need a we either need somebody telling us we have to do it, or somebody giving us money to do it. Uh, it it's not just going to happen. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I remember having having about 10 years of academic experience, I would always look back at my PhD as the years went by from graduating, longing for somebody to call me about my research and say, how can I apply this to produce more energy? And finally, the call came about three years ago after waiting for so many years. So it's always a, it's always a, a validating very uh, prideful moment when somebody takes your your long hard research and starts to apply it to real world problems and and really finding solutions to those problems. Yes, we we look forward to that that ultimate justification for all of our work for all of these years. Mm-hmm. And now I want to hear from from both of you this this partnership between. Honeywell and the Texas Management Carbon Program. Why, I guess, Ben? Why did why did Honeywell and why did you choose this technology? And and Gary, why why did you go with Honeywell to to start, I guess, applying your technology to the real world? Yeah, so jump in there. I mean, most people don't realize how instrumental Honeywell UOP has been in really a development, I call it America. I mean, you go back to all the way 1914 UOP, we started with the Dubs cracking process, uh, high octane aviation fuel in World War II, um, biodegradable detergents, a green diesel, MTO, um, basically a process of conversion of methanol to light olefins. These were all technologies that UOP developed. Now, when I say developed, some of them developed and commercialized. Many of them been with partners. Um, our eco-finding conversion of uh, natural fats, oils, acids to renewable diesel was made with a partner called INI, 
uh, out of Europe, isoalkyl ionic liquids, um, catalyzed alkylation for gasoline was Chevron. Um, it goes kind of on and on. So we, it's not only development, but our focus on commercialization and scaling up these new technologies that have a global impact. Um, so we kind of go from we are really fundamental values. We take something at a pilot plant scale and take it to world scale without kind of any intermediate demo that allows us to get to market very quickly. So what we found is, you know, Dr. Rochelle's developments really fit that model. Uh, it had been tested, um, you know, kind of not only developed, but, you know, the, the testing it had done at the National Carbon Capture Center. Uh, really, it was at a point where we can apply our commercialization and scale up experience. So we'll pass over to Dr. Rochelle. That's what I kind of see is the partnership of what he's developed with, uh, you know, the commercialization experience and the relationships we have in the market. And, and we're working with Honeywell specifically because they have experience with the old technology, with the acid gas treating part of this technology. And this, this just represents a new extension of what they already know how to do. Well, that's good. Yeah, you always want to you always want to trust somebody who has proven themselves trustworthy, as opposed to just licensing out your your work to just anybody. I was just thinking, where was I twenty two years ago? I guess that would have been the year two thousand, and that was that was even before. Then Vice President Al Gore was was really talking about climate change. So, Gary, how did you start down this path of of carbon capture, specifically in the flue gas area? And and how did you how did you see and have the foresight to realize that climate change was was going to be this? I guess, such a significant portion of, of our lives. Uh, well, I previously work, was working on the acid gas treating technology, and I was also working on uh, air pollution control from coal-fired power plants. This represented a natural marriage of those two technologies. And in the 1995-2000 timeframe, there was a lot of interest in carbon capture from power plants. And I thought, well, we could take these two things that we know how to do and combine them and, and see if we could make a go of it. And uh, so that's that's basically how we started this work in 2000. It was it was not it was not motivated by let's see how do I phrase this? Gee, we have this global warming problem. We need to do something about it. It was motivated by recognizing that a mean scrubbing or or an aqueous solution scrubbing is likely to be the technology that will be used for this. And at the time, I knew how to do that technology. So again, I was just taking what I already knew and 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 moving on and, and applying it to something where it would make a difference. Yeah, that's that's really good, and I think that's a an important point that that maybe we we don't see and we don't realize all the time that making a difference at 
say, 20 years ago, making that difference may have a significant impact later on in life, but you're making that better difference today and you're seeing the value of it today, which may have, it may pay dividends and be an exponential increase in value in 20 or 30 years. And I think that's, it's a really, it's a really important thing to think about making and looking for those ways that you can make things better, even if we don't know what challenges we're going to face in 10 or 20 years, even though we we probably can see some of those, but we can also see problems and challenges that we can solve today. And I think that was a, a point that you made earlier, Ben, that this is a this is a solution that has been developed that can be applied today and can you can see those immediate impacts and those immediate results. So with that, oh, sorry, no, Ben, no, were you going to say no, something? No, go ahead. Well, I guess the the other two questions that, that I was going to ask, we kind of already covered, but one of them was was talking about the the impact and the value of this absorption chilling. Earlier, you gave the example of a 650 megawatt coal-fired power plant. By applying this technology, you can remove the equivalent of 732,000 cars, equivalent of carbon. Are there are there any other good examples or or results that that you've seen by applying this? Not yet. Um, we're ho- hopefully I'll be me and myself and Dr. Shell will be back on your on the podcast talking about our first application of the technology. Um, I would say we're in deep technical discussions with many of the major uh, utility companies around the world. Um, they understand and um, that something has to be done, and uh, I clearly see them not just talking, um, but really evaluating solutions. So, you know, I expect to be back within a number of months, not years, talking about kind of the first demonstration that this at, you know, a commercial scale power plant application. Well, I think that sounds like a, <laughs> a great idea and a a good thing to look forward to hearing results from a a first demonstration or a, a first first example out there in the future. Yeah, so we're kind of don't want to. We're not. I guess we demonstrate the technology, but at complete commercial scale. So, you know, that's that's what's exciting here for us is the call it demonstrations we're looking at application of the first technology will be at commercial scale and that's what really gets us excited yep thank you for that clarification and i think that is it is very important to to highlight that because it is a one thing that i've noticed in in the geothermal realm where i where all of my work is is that we we have we have a lot of demonstrations and pilot scale projects of of various technologies and of of various use cases for low temperature geothermal or or 
or other examples. But one thing that we don't have is that jump from a pilot scale, say 100 kilowatt power plant up to something that is commercial at the at the five megawatt scale. And that's one of those things that that it is it's good and important to highlight that that Honeywell can make that jump. You can take that that very high end, peer reviewed, cutting edge research and new tool and new technology development. And you can immediately find and apply that to commercial scale utilization. Well, with that, I've got a few final questions. These are a little bit more fun, a little bit less technical. The first one being, what is the most important book you've read? And I want to hear from both of you. For the first one, I guess, Ben, let's have you go first. Yeah, I think, um, I guess I left off in the introduction. My first career was a military officer. So it taught me a lot about leadership and people. My favorite book is Steal Your Soldiers or Steal My Soldiers' Hearts. It's from Colonel Hackworth. Uh, I Drink Valley uh, really talks about leading people and applying those lessons. So I learned a lot of lessons out of the military that's helped me in my you know, corporate career with Honeywell. So uh, a lot of lessons. I could name a lot of books from the military that, you know, as a student and a practitioner, I've re- really helped me. And Gary, what about you? You know, it's been so long since I read a book because I've been supervising graduate students all these years. <laughs> it really is. I don't think I've read a book in 10 years. So let me rephrase the question for you. <laughs> yes. Which, well, I don't know. You may get in trouble for this, but which was the, which was your most enjoyable dissertation to read? My most enjoyable dissertation to read. Uh, there was a dissertation by Nathan Fine about uh, the role of NO2 in degrading these solvents that I that was a pleasure to read. And there was a dissertation recently by uh, Ten Yu Gao about modeling uh, these systems and coming up with new um, uh, new ways of putting together the process. That was a pleasure to read. And there was a dissertation, and there was a dissertation, and there was another dissertation. <laughs> yes. Uh, Every single time you read the next one, that becomes your favorite. That becomes my favorite, yes. So the next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? Gary, let's have you go first this time. 2060. Any particular reason you're no, I'm just, so confident? I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful. Uh, I think we'll finally get around to recognizing that we need to do it. And actually, once once we as a global community recognize we need to do it, it will happen very quickly, uh, surprisingly enough. Uh, I, 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 I think and, and I'm hopeful that, that we will come to that point. That's an interesting take on it because I think that there is, I agree that once we, once we see the value and once we see the, really the necessity of, of reaching net zero, then everything will start moving coming from, 
coming from the geothermal side where it takes a minimum of 10 years to go from from prospect generation to electrons on the grid it it's it's hard to fathom how do we go from a from what we have today even by 2050 or 2060 how do we get to net zero We're we're not as discouraged by our technology. It only takes about five years to install one of these plants. Hmm. That's that's good to know, and that is it is more hopeful and more optimistic than than looking at the pace that geothermal takes to develop. Ben, what about you? When do you think we'll be net zero? You know, I'd say the twenty fifty decade, but. I guess I'm amazingly encouraged by the last 18 months to two years of discussions. I mean, just to kind of put in context, we developed a renewable fuel process that could make um, sustainable aviation fuel, uh, 80, 60-80% carbon reduction um, uh, compared to fossil fuel jet A. And a decade ago, and it took us nearly a decade to sell two or three licenses. There are some early adopters. We're now almost, we've almost sold 30 plants. Every time you turn around, you see another announcement on SAP. So the pure acceleration, it's just not announcements. There's meaningful progress. Uh, I really get, if we can keep up this momentum, it really gets me excited that we can hit these targets. That's good. I like your optimism and I I need to adopt more of that for sure. <laughs> so the the last question is what one question do you have for me? When do you think Congress will put a price on carbon? That is that's a really tricky question, I think because we kind of we already have the incentive with the with the i think it's the q45 tax credit to reduce carbon emissions and i think it really depends on how well and how impactful that is because i think that incentives are incentives are good and i think we can look at look at the way that that well i won't go there the I think incentives are good, and I always prefer an incentive. I will mm-hmm. always take an incentive. Whereas I think once you start having something like an extra tax, that will that will drive more more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That will end up driving more action, and so once once I think. Congress is serious about it. Once you start hearing more from all of your constituents that they want to see lower carbon in in the U.S., then Congress will do something more serious than just an incentive, i.e., a, a carbon tax. So that's my that's my political answer to your political question. <laughs> 
Ben, what about you? Do you have a question for me? What is, um, I guess, your view on carbon capture? I mean, there's a range of opinions out there. Um, you know, your view on carbon capture is a, a technology. Um, yeah, be appreciating your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to carbon capture, I think it is it is absolutely necessary. As we talk about the the idea of hitting specific CO2 concentration numbers, we need to consider how are we actually going to get back to those numbers if we're already above them. And what that means is keeping carbon out of the atmosphere. And it also means capturing some carbon that's already in the atmosphere. So to to start reducing the carbon in the atmosphere, we need something like direct air capture, which as you as you both pointed out is is the most expensive kind of the the most difficult part of carbon capture because it just has such a a low concentration as you two put it. But why not capture it before then? And then I think the what we really need is a a process and a workflow and a streamline for storage as well because because ultimately we need to store all of the carbon that we are not putting in the atmosphere so the easier it is to capture it and the more the the higher concentration that we can capture it the better and easier i think it'll be to and cheaper it'll be to store it Thank you. Yes. Thank you too for your questions and thank you for joining me on the show. Before we sign off, is there anything else that either of you would like to say? Let me jump in and give my spiel. Uh, carbon, global, global climate change is happening. We are doing it to ourselves. We can do something about it. There are lots of things that we should be doing about it. We should be supporting renewables, conservation, electric cars, and other things, and CO2 capture from combustion sources. So yeah, let's do something here. about it. There's, there's, you know, we talked about um, new carbon capture and some other technologies. There's going to be one, no one single technology solution here. We need a broad portfolio uh, to bring to bear to do exactly that, solve this issue. Um, we have a number of technologies in Honeywell that we're super excited about, and there's many others that others are developing, and we're going to need every one of them to solve this problem. And I think this is a very unique technology, and uh, appreciate it. It's very, you know, thank you for having us. Well, thank you again to both of you for being on the show and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the energy transition solutions podcast please do me a favor give me a five-star rating and leave a review doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience and if you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry connect with oggn on linkedin and visit oggn.com it's a new year and time for a new work scene 
If you're in the Houston area, I encourage you to go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. It is my Houston office when I'm in town. And it's also where OGGN hosts their monthly industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.